Everybody Googles everything, especially potential customers or employers, and a business or personal online reputation can make or break you. If negative search results or reviews are impacting you, Webamax is here to help. Our proven process restores your online reputation quickly and effectively, and it matters. Don't let negative results control your narrative. Visit GoWebamax.com and fill out a brief confidential form to see how we can help. Remember, if you aren't paying attention to your online reputation, someone else is. GoWebamax.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Calling all podcasters, musicians, vloggers, and reporters, and everyone else who wants crystal clear recording that's super portable. The Sure Motive family of microphones makes studio quality audio that's as simple as plug and play. Many of the world's top podcasters rely on Shure, and with a Motive line of iOS and USB microphones, portability is now your friend. Imagine being able to get great audio quickly and easily from your phone, tablet, or computer. Simply visit Shure.com Motive to start getting great audio for your content now. That's S-H-U-R-E dot com forward slash M-O-T-I-V. Welcome back to the Red Seat Podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux. Today, I am joined by Brett Cowett of BP Boston. He's the managing editor over there. You can find Brett on Twitter at B.A. Cowett and hear all of his thoughts about the Red Sox there. You can find me at Dev Jake. And uh, we are welcoming you back for a uh, off-season edition of the Red Seat. Um, and today, we are going to talk about some of the recent things that have been occurring with the team. Most specifically, they do have a new manager since the last time we've spoken on this show. Uh, I have also moved. So if you think that I am sounding echoey in this podcast, it's because I am broadcasting from an empty room. Um, so uh, you will have to deal with that for a little bit. But uh, Brett, what's up? Uh, not much. Just getting used to the winter weather out here. It dropped from like 70 to... 50 degrees in like two weeks so uh i've got to start stocking up on coats i am not the buffest person so i can't contain my body heat i need the coats um so does that count for winter out in washington 50 uh, it's probably going to drop another like 10 or 20 degrees before we actually get to winter and you know still like freezing rain every now and then you know so you really wouldn't like boston then 
I, I don't know. I like seasons. This is like I just got to get used to this because I've lived I lived uh, twenty years in the American Southwest where there were like two seasons, hot and really hot. So I I just got to get used to it. I think I'd like it. I like wearing long sleeve big jacket stuff. So I I don't know. Let's see what happens. I think I'd enjoy it. It could be okay. You might like it. Mm. Um, all right. So the big news is since the last time we spoke. Um, the Red Sox have hired a new manager. And when Brian Joyner and I were on the podcast, I did my best to try and convince Brian Joyner that Alex Cora uh, was the logical choice to be the next manager. And by the end of the podcast, he was on board. Uh, it turns out Dave Dombrowski was on board as well. The Red Sox have hired Alex Cora. Uh, and in the process, they have also lost uh, the majority of their staff, uh, their, their coaches. So they have lost... Carl Willis, the pitching coach, he is headed back to Cleveland. They lost Brian Butterfield, who is headed to the Cubs. Uh, and they have also lost hitting coach Chili Davis, who is also headed to the Cubs. Um, what is your gut reaction to all of these things? Uh, you've had some time to digest Alex Cora, a little bit less time to digest the loss of the coaches. What does it all mean, Brett? Uh, it just means they're just going to switch out. I know they're keeping a bunch of the... the uh... The secondary coaches, I think, uh, I think the bench coach is staying, the bullpen coach is staying, but most of this is just. I think they would. I think Cora would have been fine coming in with these coaches as well. I don't think he would have had a problem. But uh, will it? But the just kind of the exodus of the main, of the top three coaches there is is interesting. I didn't think uh, Joe Madden had such a pull on the red, on the Davis and Butterfield, but you know that's a new thing to me. And uh, Willis being gone, I think, I, I don't know. He's always been, from what I've heard, that he's always really liked, he's always had, like, some magic where it comes to, like, bumping up people's velocities. Hmm. Like, you saw with the Red Sox bullpen this year. You get, like, guys like Blaine Boyer, and he's throwing 95 in the middle of the season. Right. So right. it's just, I think he deserves a little bit of credit, at, at least that, for what he did with the bullpen and some of the pitchers. So it, it's tough to see what, which what it. Oh man, words. Uh, it's tough to see what impact, if at all, these guys have had like a material impact. But uh, we'll see where Alex Cora gets his supporting cast from. Because comparing the guys who left to what he brings in, I think is going to be huge. Yeah, and we have no idea what that's going to be at this point. There's, you know, been a couple names floated, but really uh, nothing solid out there in the rumor mill. Um, in terms of kind of ranking these guys in terms of how you estimate their loss to the team. Uh, how, how would you rank these three in terms of biggest loss to uh, not such a big deal? Uh, you probably know my number. You probably know my third, but I think from top to bottom, I would go Willis, Davis, and then Butter. J uh, just because uh, the Red Sox, if the Red Sox didn't have any contact, this any any way to make contact this year and become one of the highest contact percentage teams in the league with Davis. I don't think they would have gone as far as they did, honestly, because that offense really needed anything to get them going. And the fact that they're making contact on like a, almost everything is almost a saving grace. Mm -hmm. And I already talked about Willis and how he seemed to like bring, how he seemed to like bring velocity to guys who didn't have it before. And with Butter, I have like I have a very hot take on that. Like I tweeted that out, and uh, he was 
from what I read and somewhat inferred, he was one of the people that really pushed the hyper-aggression on the base paths. The just go all out for the next base no matter what you do. And that was a point of contention with the fans and just analytics for the Red Sox this year because they, I think, they were, I, if they didn't lead the league in outs on the bases, they were pretty damn close, I think. So, and but then there, but then he was a good fielding coach, which and helped like get Bogarts back on track, helped Devers like get his get his uh, glove ready for made for the majors. So it's, I just kind of felt the first two guys were a bit more instrumental in making the current Red Sox the the current Red Sox than Butter really was, honestly. Yeah, that's an interesting take. I, I, I think that there are, there's definitely some criticism that lies with, with Brian Butterfield for how aggressive these guys were. And, you know, some of the sends we saw were just really bad. And you know, Mitch Moreland in the playoffs just really stands out. I think that was a comically bad send. And ultimately, it's it's tough to know whose call that was eventually. You know, like, was this top down from Farrell? You know, was he supposed to send anybody really if they had – any sort of a, a chance in hell of scoring or how much of this decision making was actually his. And I sort of grapple with that idea, but ultimately, I mean, as the third base coach in the game, you're the one who has the, the, the decision to, to make that send or not. So um, I, I think it's fair to give him some blame for that. I, I would actually rank though, these guys a little bit differently. I think Chili Davis is going to be the biggest loss for the team. And I know that, Maybe they do need to change as an offense, but I liked what he did with the guys here. Um, I would rank Brian Bannister second because of his fielding acumen uh, with these guys, and I would actually have Willis third. What's that? You mean Butterfield, not Bannister? Oh, yeah, Butterfield. Yes, yes, (laughs) not Bannister. Uh, Thinking about pitching. Um, But uh, I think that uh, with with Willis, the thing that I was a little bit – perturbed by I guess is that he could never get pitchers to perform very well in the playoffs you know the, it, it seemed like whenever the starters got to the playoffs they were either out of gas or ineffective so I wonder if there is something inherently wrong with what he is doing with it with, with the pitchers so um, I'm not all that sad to see him go and also he had this really surly look on him all the time that you know was just unpleasant so yeah <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know how much that plays into it, but um, I like the idea that Brian Bannister, who I mistakenly called Butterfield, uh, is still around, though. And I'm going to be very interested to see what his role is with the team going forward, whether or not he's a candidate to step into that pitching coach position internally. Uh, and like you mentioned, they did retain bullpen coach Dana Levangie, who's been here for like 20-something years. So um, that's... That's good to have that continuity there. Yeah, it's it's nice to see that they're going to keep like that, at least the back end of the coaching staff together. I think that, I think Dusarcina is going to stay if he doesn't get like a bench coach bench coach spot somewhere else. So he's I think he had like a short stint in Anaheim with the Angels and he was like their third base coach for a while. Then he came back. So I'm interested to see what if he'll do anything as well. Yeah, that'll be interesting. See if Cora keeps him around. I don't know whether or not they have any sort of relationship together, but um, you know, there's there's certainly a lot of uh, attractiveness to this this Red Sox job. And the thing that I tweeted out on Twitter, which is probably a long shot, but you know, if anybody can lure a talent, it's a team like the Red Sox. And I'm wondering if they would go after one of these superstar pitching coaches like a Don Cooper 
uh, or a Ray Searage. That would be a really interesting direction for the team to go, especially someone like Cooper who already has familiarity with Chris Sale. Yeah, that'd be interesting. It's, I think it would take a lot to lure them out. Uh, my, just making the highest paid pitching coaches, I guess. But um, uh, if they even if they landed one of those, I'd be very happy to see what they could do going forward. With the hitting coach, I don't know what really you can do because you can't really blame the hitting last year on Chili Davis, even though the whole contact happy stuff might be attributed to him. So it's it's interesting to see who they might get for that. I mean. I, It'd be funny if they brought David Ortiz back for that. That'd be hilarious. But I think he kind of likes his vacation time in March, so I don't know. Um, but uh, I'm I'm kind of interested to see who they'll actually bring up for hitting. It's that's kind of an open spot, and it's not, and I, I I'm I don't know what else to say. I'm just like actually curious about that for the first time ever. I'm curious about a coaching vacancy. Yeah, it it is really interesting, and I think you're you're probably right. That's the most interesting of the vacancies, uh, especially because the Red Sox took a different direction offensively than pretty much the rest of baseball last year. The Red Sox are always known for being one of these teams that has a ton of power, scores a ton of runs, uh, certainly with the long ball. And last year they were well below average in that department. Um, so one of the things we talked to Alex Spear about when we had him on our show this year was uh, the fact that guys don't typically try and lift the ball very much. And Alex actually wrote about that today uh, at the Boston Globe. Uh, the headline was, Will a new hitting coach make the Red Sox a fly ball team? And I think that's kind of the most interesting question uh, going forward, especially with guys like Xander Bogarts, who only has a couple years left here in Boston, which is you know shocking to hear that already. Yeah. Um, but really, that window is running out already. But um, he, he's a guy that you know some people graded out with 70 power when he was a prospect, and certainly doesn't hit like someone uh, who has 70 power. So I wonder if a new guy could come in here and uh, get some of these guys to start tapping into their raw power a little bit more. Yeah, and honestly, uh, we've seen two different kinds of Bogarts. We've seen the one that slaps hits all over the place and hits like 330 in 2015. And we see the one that hits like 285, 290, but still gets 21 homers in 2016. And if we're going by true average, the one in 2016 was far more valuable. At least. Right. And, the th- and there's just other things. That, it's just little things that other players can do. Like Mookie Betts used to stop trying to pull the ball so much. He used to only pull the ball like, 33, 35% of the time. And this last year, he tried to do it 43% of the time. Like, that was a huge jump in terms of him. And he just kind of, and he ended up rolling, and he ended up rolling over stuff in the outside part of the plate instead of going the other way. And it's not a bad thing to go the other way if it's going to be a single all the time. I mean, it's whatever. So it's just, there's just little things that these hitters could do just to not be as. I won't say inept since even the even the down years by a couple of these players are really really good. Right. To not be at to not have that offensive bar that's so low as it was in 2017. Yeah, I think that'd be a good thing. This offense certainly needs to respond next year in a huge way. It's going to be the focus of the off season with free agents, um, and it'll be certainly the focus of the pitching the uh, new hitting coach who comes in here and has to figure out how the hell to get these guys to. Uh, optimize their talent a little bit more because I think everybody left this year feeling like Jackie Bradley Jr., uh, Hanley Ramirez, and uh, Xander Bogarts left a whole lot on the table, not to mention Mookie Betts, who you were just talking about. So another guy who I I think left a lot on the table this year, 
more because of health reasons is Dustin Pedroia, uh, who is going to be out now until late May at least uh, with surgery uh, on his knee cartilage. Um, so, you know, ultimately for a guy who's signed here for until he's like 40 years old, um, it's a good thing for, for Dustin Pedroia to get this surgery and get this taken care of and be one of the more uh, healthy, hopefully, product and productive members of the team. But in the meantime, the Red Sox need to figure out what the hell they're going to do without Dustin Pedroia. And I think with these timelines, I mean, we don't know whether or not late May is going to be accurate. Maybe it's earlier because it's Dustin Pedroia, or maybe it's two months later because these things are unpredictable. So, um, first of all, what was your reaction to him getting the surgery? I mean, were you relieved that he's finally going to get this knee thing taken care of, or were you a little bit nervous about the whole operation? Um, when it came, when the whole news came down, I was just kind of whelmed. I wasn't overwhelmed or underwhelmed by it. So I kind of expected it after a report, like I think it was like a week earlier, saying that he had to decide between like trying. He's had to decide between trying to stave off the pain or actually getting something to solve it. And the one and the latter, which he chose, would take a long, much longer recovery. And so it was. It, I think my reaction is just like, wow, he's actually kind of getting up there in age. He's one of the two oldest guys in the team. The yeah. other, the other, the other guy who's just his age, I think he might be a few months older, is Hanley Ramirez. And then there's a huge gap, and then there's David Price. So uh, Pedroia is actually even older than Hanley. Oh, he is. Okay, I was wondering. Okay, jeez, he is the oldest then. Yeah. Um, but like, it's like Pedroia's been here. Pedroia's been in Boston for ten years plus. That's an insane amount of time, no matter no matter the sport, no matter the league. And it's just kind of – I think this one just kind of realized, made me realize, like, man, he's really kind of getting up there. He's not – he's 34 years old, Dustin Pedroia. He's not 28 years old where he could just fly over the field and throw himself into the ground and get the ball and throw it the first instantly. Like, that's his style of play. It's going to be – it's going to be rough. It's going to be rough. It's going to be gritty. And it's going to – and – I guess we should have seen that it wasn't going to age very well. Like that's, I mean, it's not a knock on Pedroia. That's just how he plays. There's no other way that he will play, and no other way that he wants to play. So, I to me, it was just kind of like, oh man, the changing of the guard is coming a lot sooner than I thought. Because Pedroia, for a long time, has been my favorite player on this team. I mean, throughout high school, college, everything, and. I, I'm just like, this is this might be like the beginning of the end. This might be the beginning of the twilight for Dustin Pedroia. He might. And he might end his tenure on the Red Sox just as like a as like a uh, free, infrequently used bench guy because just how knees work. Knees can kill. Knees and back injuries just scare me all the time with position players. Like they all they just slowly but surely just drag you down. So if he comes back fully healthy, he might have like maybe one or two really one or two good years left, like he had in 2016. But if it's if he's like obviously just kind of hobbled by it and you can see like the burst not there anymore i think he's uh i think he'd be pretty close to just slow pretty close to the downward slope of that uh aging curve there yeah yeah it's it's uh it's interesting just how quickly this has occurred and he is 34 uh i looked at his contract he is signed in boston through age 37 so um I could easily see a scenario where if this surgery uh doesn't go as well as we think that Dustin Pedroia could be out of baseball in a couple of years and not yeah. even finish out his contract. But, you know, 
hopefully, and I think the idea behind this surgery is get this taken care of so that he can play out the string uh, with the Red Sox and, and be more effective doing that. But, you know, it's it's unpredictable, and you, you don't know. It could be the beginning of the end, and I think that's why Matt Corey felt compelled to write that sort of retrospective uh, that he put up on the site today about Dustin Pedroia. So uh, if you want to recap his career, definitely go check that piece out for sure. Um, the internal options to replace him uh, are not that sexy, uh, to, to say the least. Uh, the, the guys who are potentially going to be options to replace him internally, uh, barring trade or injury, uh, are Brock Holt, Marco yeah. Hernandez, who is coming off shoulder surgery, uh, Josh Rutledge, who they may or may not sign um, or continue to have on the team, and um, Devin Marrero, who hits lefties and nothing else. Uh, so uh any of those guys seem like worthwhile fill-ins for Pedroia. Uh, i mean i've never been a huge fan of brock holt the hitter after that one all-star half he had he's always had concussions he's always tried to play through stuff like vertigo and it's just never ended up well like he is the example of he is a prime example of stop playing through your injuries just let yourself rest uh i've I don't know if he'd be able to hold up. I don't know if he'd be able to hold up through Pedroia actually being able to come back, and maybe like taking another month rehabbing. You don't know how long that might take. So that's like that's a half season where you'd have to rely on Brock Holt, which I am very much not a fan of. I think the closest, I think the best option out of all of that would probably have to be Marco Hernandez, even coming off the shoulder surgery. It's because he actually showed that he can hit. He can. He can hit a bit. He can still feel. He can feel decently. I, and it's not like I don't. I think he had like a reverse platoon split against lefties. Like every time they put a lefty in, he hit like 350 or something last year. I can't remember. But um, there's also think, Su Wei Lin too. I forgot to throw him into the mix. That's true. That's true. I he's he's an he's an interesting wild card. I kind of see him as like the heir apparent to Brock Holt. If they don't keep Brock Holt, they'll promote him and make him like the bench gadget pretty much. But yeah. uh, I I just kind of see Marco Hernandez uh, the internal options alone. I just kind of see Marco Hernandez as like the best guy for the job right now. Uh he had shoulder surgery what in June? I think. It was pretty early on. Let me check that. Yeah. Um I want to say when did he have this thing? He had the surgery June, uh, no May fourth. Oh wow, that's a lot earlier than I thought. Yep. Okay. Um, I think he. I mean, he's got at that point when we get back to spring training, he's had like ten months to recover. So I think he might, depending on how he looks early spring training, if he's looking fluid, if he doesn't look hampered, I think he's got the job. I would like to give him the job right out of the gate, honestly. So I, I just feel like him being young, him actually showing that he could hit last year and the year before, he's he should at least get a shot. Yeah, uh, I agree with you that out of those internal options, uh, Marco is definitely the best answer. I'm just worried about the shoulder surgery. I think 10 months, you know, it seems like enough time to recover, but you don't know if recover means be the Marco Hernandez you were pre-surgery. Uh, yeah. And I think they need him to be the, the Marco that he was pre-surgery because there wasn't a whole lot of ability for him to to lose, uh, for him to be an effective player. It's not like he was a superstar before that. He was a, a serviceable utility player with a decent bat. So uh, if that bat 
loses anything in, in translation, um, it is going to be bad. I would like to see Brock Holt and Josh Rutledge not back with the team, in fact. I think that Sue Wei Lin and Devin Marrero can pretty much replace what those guys bring to the table at a much cheaper price. So I don't okay. even think those guys are huge options right now, personally, uh, especially Holt. I mean, I think what he brings to the table, especially with Farrell gone, I, I don't think there's going to be any real reason uh, to keep him around. He was sort of Farrell's boy, it seemed like. Yeah, I just – I don't like Brock Holt, the player. I wish, like, the person would stay in Boston because he is a extremely charismatic person. Mm-hmm. But him as a player, oh, man, he was just – it was just ridden to the ground, man. Like, even when he couldn't hit, you're just crashing. Even when he couldn't hit, his fielding still wasn't there, and you kind of need at least some semblance of hitting – to at least give up that slightly to at least deal with that slightly below average fielding if you want to if I'm being nice about it so it's uh it I yeah I I agree with you on not seeing Rutledge or Holt back they just every time every time they'd come up I'd be like well let's see it I wouldn't be like oh let's see if they get a hit it's like oh let's see if they make contact something might happen yeah so it's it was just that it was just that kind of expectation once you've gotten to that point you kind of know those players are just not what they were or what you expect them to be. Yeah. Um, looking outside of the internal guys, um, I think it gets a little bit more interesting. You have the possibility of fulfilling this position by re-signing uh, Eduardo Nunez, who's coming off of the knee injury. Um, you also have a couple free agent options out there that look sort of interesting. Um, those options are... Um, here I have him. Uh, it is Howie Kendrick, um, Brendan Phillips, uh, Chase Utley, and then if you want to get a little bit more expensive and maybe a little less likely to sign, uh, a guy like Neil Walker is a potential uh, player. But I think it's going to be a little bit tough to sign a guy like Neil Walker who can get a starting job for the entire year and probably a multi-year deal elsewhere. I mm-hmm. do think Nunez is sort of a really interesting name because he's clearly better than the other three guys that I mentioned in that group. And also coming off the knee injury, I wonder if he would be inclined to take one of these one-year show-me deals to kind of get healthy and uh, provide sort of the same spark that he had last year. Yeah, and the Red Sox are already interested in bringing him back even before the season ended. So they they had already shown like like public interest in bringing him back. So I think he'll be I think he'll be the, the really the only external option they'll bring in. The other guys just kind of just seem like old dudes who you'd rather have on your bench than anything else. Like Brandon Phillips is existing. Uh, Chase Utley's grown old in Los Angeles. So it's it's a it's there's it's really just not sexy look for any guy who can at least you can hope that like he catches a hot streak and hits for like three weeks out of the two months that Pedroia is supposedly going to be gone for. And you know Nunez can hit in Fenway. He likes Fenway. He like he wants to be there. He had that offensive explosion when he came over. So even with the knee injury, if he comes back, and if he, if it comes back, and even if he's not like all the way there in the field, he can still hit in Fenway. So I I'd, I'd like to at least give him an extended like try at the job. Yeah, I love the idea of Nunez, and you know how I feel about 2018 and 2019 being important years too. So if it's yeah. if the team is pushing their chips in. Um, there's no reason to try and save money on a position like that. There's no reason to handicap yourself for two months of games, uh, at least. Um, so I, I think they go out and spend a little bit of money on this position. 
Uh, it is kind of interesting to note, though, and sort of amazing that Dustin Pedroia has been able to qualify for uh, the Gold Glove finalist uh, again. So he's one of the three candidates for the Gold Glove this year, uh, despite playing on a knee that had practically no cartilage. I mean, we, we just need to give some respect there. <laughs> yeah, seriously, that is insane. I He would never, honestly, unless like he was legit not able to walk, he would never say anything about it. And so it's honestly a bit, it's honestly crazy how he just drives so hard every day day in day out just to do what he does and even with his knee literally even with his knee literally scratching his bones raw he still <laughs> did what he did it's crazy yeah he is an animal that is for sure uh so the, the red sox had not only dustin pedroia uh qualified to be a gold glove finalist but they also had mitch moreland who is an interesting guy i'm not sure if i would have put him there um mookie betts uh, who I think is the favorite for this award this year. Uh, and yeah. then Chris Sale, interestingly enough. And you know what? I did kind of, when I saw Chris Sale's name there, I sort of thought back to all the Chris Sale starts I, I watched this year, and I was like, yeah, this guy is pretty damn good with the glove. He's, he was kind of quick like a cat whenever the ball was hit hit at him. I thought he was a pretty good fielder. I mean, it really also helps that you don't have to field 300 of the batters you face. So, I mean... <laughs> I think that should go into the calculations on that one. Yeah, I suppose that's uh, the best way to field is to not have <laughs> to field at all. Exactly. Just strike out 300 of them who don't have to worry about it. So do you think any of these guys end up taking home the award? Um, I think at the very least, Betts does. And I want to say Moreland does, but I think Santana might run up and steal that. Yeah, we should mention that the, the candidates uh, against Moreland are Eric Hosmer and Carlos Santana. Uh, the candidates against Mookie are Aaron Judge and Cole Calhoun. And the candidates uh, against Sale are Stroman and Alex Cobb. I, I guess I'll give it to I guess I'll give it to Sale. Just like it's so hard to quantify that, but I guess I'll just give it to Sale out of recognition. I don't know, but like the first baseman, it's the first baseman here are weird because they're all free agents. <laughs> I don't know how often that's happened, but they are. Um, but All potential Red Sox players? Yeah, exactly. And Moreland was really, really good. Like, he just made things seem super smooth. He just reminded me of, like, Adrian Gonzalez when he first came over. Like, that was how good he looked. So it was. So I think he might get that if Santana doesn't run up and steal the wave. And, and Hosmer had a great all-around season, but I don't know about his fielding work. That's always kind of been his issue lately uh with second baseman i honestly think dozier gets that pedroia was really really good but dozier was also fantastic and he was on like an upstart twins team so you might get the narrative in there mm -hmm. and honestly far mookie betts was far and away the best defensive outfielder in the american league from what i remember so he should win right field pretty easily but there is also aaron judge so you never know I, I just don't even think it's close between him and Judge. I know we've seen Judge make a couple good catches in the playoffs, and he's surprisingly nimble for a guy who's that sized. But, I mean, Mookie Betts was just special out there. I mean, yeah. he plays the position like a center fielder does. It, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be close. It should be, like, it should be Mookie, and I'm trying to say that from a point of objectivity here. But with the but like Aaron Judge, every time his name gets thrown into something, you're always going to have the people lining up behind him to make sure he tries to win it. So, yep, eh, stupid New Yorkers. Uh, 
So <laughs> I'm, I'm going to call a bunch of bullshit, though, on one award uh, that our, our friend over at Over the Monster, uh, Matt Collins, former BP Boston guy, pointed out is that mm -hmm. Jackie Bradley Jr. was not eligible for the Golden Glove uh, this year at center field, which is sort of bullshit considering the other candidates, Kevin Pillar, Byron Buxton, and Lorenzo Cain. Um, I personally think he's a better defensive player than Kevin Pillar. I don't care what the metrics say. I think he's better defensive player than Lorenzo Cain. Uh, I think Buxton probably has him in that regard. Buxton's incredible. But, like, how do you not put that guy in there? every single yeah. year that's the thing like you like maybe like the thing is if you look at like if you look at fan graphs just al type of guys you have bucks at the top because bucks was just fantastic now that he's actually hitting you had kevin pilar for the next guy and then you had jackie bradley jr and there's really no one close kane's nowhere close to jackie bradley in terms of defensive output and let me and as i check through baseball prospectus right now i just don't know how you kind of she just kind of shafted Jackie. I, he's so good. I don't know what, what else he, need, he needs to do at that point, you know? I also feel like just there's this element that we haven't quite analyzed that makes Jackie underrated somehow. Like, I, th I think maybe it's playing next to Mookie Betts or um, playing in Fenway or something where he doesn't have to cover as much ground. I, there's just some element of him that just isn't captured uh, by these metrics appropriately because when you watch him... He he does pretty much what Buxton does, and he's been doing it for longer. Yeah, no, that's that's very that's very fair. And honestly, go, playing defense that well in Fenway center field, like we saw him rob Judge's home run on Sunday Night Baseball a while back, which was which made me like hoot and holler for like five minutes afterwards. But um, it's playing defense in that center field is ridiculous. Like playing good defense in that center field is otherworldly. So I I just don't know. It's it, it just kind of kind of got shafted on that one. And but like we saw with Jeter, like Gold Gloves aren't always the best defenders. I think Brendan Ryan won it only once or something like that, and he was a stellar defender. So it's just I it's just the same the same old BS that the Gold Glove finalists are always on. It feels like. Has Jackie Bradley ever won a Gold Glove? I thought he won one last year, but I can't remember. I don't know why I don't know that. <laughs> uh, let me see here. Be I don't you think get. he has. Oh, no, I don't think he has either. No, yeah, he has not. Yeah, so if Jackie Bradley makes it through his prime without mm -hmm. winning a gold glove, this award is a farce. <laughs> I... I can see that, yeah. There's the thing is with the AL is that there are a ton of really good defensive center fielders. Like in in the in the AL East alone, you have Bradley, you have Pilar, you have Kiermaier, and going and then expanding out, you have Buxton, you have Trout. So you have Kane it's, too. I mean, he is good. I'll give him so credit. I mean, in his prime, like he is like going into his prime now. So if he doesn't win one over the next like three years. Yeah, I can probably say, you know what, that's BS. He should have gotten something. But also, we probably have to recognize how good the other AL center fielders are because we are really in an era where center fielders have really become just amazing defensive stalwarts. 
Well, you know, I haven't, I, I still have yet to see the video of uh, Kevin Pillar or uh, Kevin Kiermaier or Byron Buxton throwing a ball from home plate into the outfield, <laughs> uh, into the outfield stands. So uh, I think until they can do that, it's Jackie's, Jackie's award to lose, guys. He's the whole package. He's got the arm. He's got everything, and he's, uh, he's a better dancer than them. So. <laughs> Um, all right, so moving on to our next topic, um, I want to give a little bit of an aside to uh, Koji Uihara for a second, because uh, our British friends over at Batflips and Nerds actually uh, wrote an article recently about Koji and it potentially being his last game, um, because he didn't even make the playoff roster for the Cubs. Uh, didn't pitch particularly well this year. He's 42 years old and looks like he might be retiring. But I just want to give a little bit of an homage to uh, just how ridiculously good and fun Koji Uihara was in the Red Sox uh, clubhouse and, and wearing that uniform and what he did in 2013. And, uh, I mean, what, what do you remember about Koji? Because he was just one of the most fun guys to watch ever. I remember when every – I remember every time whether it was – the pennant and playoff game or the World Series, he, he would jump into David Ross's arms like a baby and then just <laughs> into the sky. That was fun. Uh, he was just the high, the high, the best thing I think that came out of his tenure on the Red Sox, though, was that one gif in 2013 where he got, I think this is before he became closer, so it was like the first two months. <clears throat> so he's running, he got out of a tough inning in Chicago. And it's like going through the going through the dugout, high fiving each other, and like <laughs> Shane Victorino is staring off into space. So he just turns to him, slaps him in the shoulder, and keeps going on the high five. <laughs> Shane Victorino like nearly jumps out of his skin, and I'm just like, oh my god, Koji, why? <laughs> it was probably one of the funniest moments from that team, just because you just had Victorino just being a space cadet and Koji slapping him hard enough to make him jump. So that was probably that's probably gonna be my most cherished memory from Koji's time in the Red Sox. Yeah, that was uh, that was pretty amazing stuff. And for for the entire time that Koji was on the Red Sox in 2013, 2014, 2015, and 2016, uh, when he was on the field, he was a really really reliable player. And I I think we got to point out uh, his 2013 season here and just how ridiculous it was. Recap kind of what he did that year. Um, because it is one of the great seasons in Red Sox reliever history. Uh, he had a strikeout uh, minus walk rate of 34.7% uh, <laughs> that year. His whip during that season was 0.57. Uh, oh, it's, oh, my God. It's, it's just – it's crazy. He was – I would take – and it's not even close. It's not even remotely close for me. And I know this is crazy to say, but I would take 2013 Koji Uihara over Craig Kimbrell every single day. No questions asked. He was just automatic. And with, with Kimbrell, I don't care how good his stats are. Every time he goes up, I am completely frightened that he's going to start yanking the ball. I... With Kimbrough, I don't know how you like have been in the league so long and still when the big moment comes you get over amped and start hooking stuff into the other batter's box. It's such bullshit. I mean, what are you <laughs> doing, dude? Just pitch like you usually pitch. Oh, uh, yeah, no, I can totally see the argument for twenty thirteen Koji, because twenty thirteen Koji was a monster. And watching and he was one of those it was one of those few years where every time he came in you're just like done. It's over. Let's yeah. go home. 
no questions asked. It was just like, all right, who's up next? Oh, he's gone. Bye. Yeah. Try, try hitting the splitter. Oh, he can't. Bye. Yeah. Just, just oh man, dude was a beast. I, yeah. I want to put that season in perspective, but that is one of the best seasons in terms of uh, whip of all time. I mean, that is up there with the the Kimbrel 2012 season. That is up there with Kenley Jansen and Craig Kimbrell from this year. Um, it is just unstoppable, and that that GIF will live forever. It is one of my absolute favorite ones. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I agree. This guy was the man. Um, all right, so moving on. We both recently wrote some articles uh, up at the site, which you should go check out. Uh, you wrote an article, which I thought was really interesting, about expectations on bouncing back, where you gave sort of a – uh, a take that was, you know, a little bit unpopular amongst some people. So, what was it about your 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 take that kind of uh, um, made some people's feathers ruffle? I just kind of think that we all expect like the core and a couple other guys to bounce back and all bounce back fully, and that's a nice idea. It's a, it's a hope we all have. But the reality is these guys won't bounce back all together, all fully, because you have you already have Pedroia who's gonna miss at least two months, so yeah. you don't know what you're getting from that. You have Hanley has to undergo shoulder surgery again. I I don't know how he's got to have like a nasty like maze of scars on his shoulders by now from all the surgeries he's had. Um, and then you have the core, then you have the core guys. You have Benintendi who is probably the one guy who might be regression proof. He did fine. He did fine his first full stint. Uh, Mookie, I think, just needs like a mechanical change. Just stop trying to pull the ball so much. You're gonna and you'll stop popping up all the time. Um, but with like we're talking about like guys like Jackie Bradley, who hit, who defensive wise probably won't change all that much. But hitting wise, we still don't have a baseline for him. We don't know. We have no like middle ground of what to expect from him. We've seen his peaks. We've seen his valleys. We've in both season wide and like week to week. So it's hard to say if he'll like bounce back this year because we don't know like what his peak and what his valley will be so and then you get to like the pitchers who might honestly be fine sale doesn't have to be historic sale like he was in 2017 but the odds are and the odds are he won't he just needs to be sale and i think the red sox will be fine um then you have eduardo rodriguez who won't come back until june as well and Another knee surgery that's kind of becoming a common topic among Red Sox players, but he's all you're you can't exactly rely on him since he always like has like maybe one or two games you're like, oh man, this guy's gonna be the future of the Red Sox pitching, and then he gets blown up the next start. So he's always kind of inconsistent. It's just that I like the I want to believe these guys will all bounce back all at once. This team will be a force again. They'll be like a top ten offense, top five offense if you wanna shoot for the stars on that one. But the reality probably is that a bunch of the guys who underperformed defensively won't come back to hit like they did in 2016 or whatever their peak seasons were. That's just how baseball just kind of works. You're just not going to get you're not going to get the 90th percentile Pakota projection out of everybody. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think that's the reason why I really liked your article is because your article was rooted in realism. Um, if I'm looking at this roster and I'm a betting man, if, if this is what I did for a living, I would say that for the majority of these guys, there is a 50% or less chance that they perform better than they did this year, next year. Like, 
I agree with you on Jackie Bradley Jr. I have no idea what to expect from that man uh, offensively. I mean, every year it seems like we get something different. Every month we get something different. Do we really think Christian Vasquez is going to have a better offensive year? Hanley I have zero confidence in. Uh, Mitch Moreland might not be with the team. I think Mookie and Benintendi are the two guys that I look at, and I'm like, yep, those guys are going to at least be as good as they were this year, next year. Um, yeah. So they're, they're money in the bank. But, man, I am the world's biggest Xander Bogarts fan. Maybe Ben Carsley is probably the only person that actually loves him more <laughs> than I do. But I have to say, like, Bogey, you got to figure some stuff out. And I... It's getting to the point where, like, the Red Sox, he is not trade-proof anymore. And that sucks to say, but he has to really figure some things out. And I don't have a whole lot of confidence that he's going to come in and put it together uh, next year. I know he's got two silver sluggers already, and he's a good young player. But, I mean, Xander needs to be worthy of a 3-4 five spot in the lineup two three four five spot in the lineup and right now he is just not worthy of that he i i kind of give him a slight mulligan on this year since i think he was playing with like a hurt wrist for like three months the and whole we, year pretty much i think and he didn't really and he kind of took off in like the last two weeks of september and the playoffs like he had that opposite field home run i think it was in game four and you were just like oh okay well he's got that mm-hmm. so it's with him, I just don't know. Like, we don't – he's been so many – he's, like, had, like, that one super great contact season where he hit 320 but didn't hit for a bunch of power. He had seven homers. And then the next year, he started hitting for contact at the beginning of the season, and then he started hitting for more power toward the end, and that's with 21 homers. So it's it's hard to tell where he's going to land in between one of those. And those are both, like, top – those are both, like, really good – I guess really good seasons that but you can't really have them both at the same time. So if he wants to hit, he's got to decide whether he wants to be the 2015 Bogarts where he sprayed things over the field or the 2016 one where he punished bad pitches and actually like started pulling the ball a little bit more. So it's with him. I just don't know. I think with, I think we do conflate our expectations of him as a prospect to what he should be now. Because not like guys who have for a bunch of power sometimes don't really it doesn't really translate. Sometimes he's just a sometimes he's just a good hitter instead of a great hitter in the majors. It's that's just that's just how that's just how the majors kind of affects guys sometimes. But it's it's tough to really wonder what he actually is if we average him out because everything's been kind of all over the place in good good or bad. So I, I hope he gets better. He's only 25 years old, and he's a good shortstop. So, I mean, any any like positive effect, offense, any positive things from his bad is a plus, and he's giving us more positives than negatives at this point. Yeah, you have to think that going into age 25, 26, 27 seasons, that if, if he's going to take that big jump in power, that it's going to happen over the next few years. Um, and I agree with you that, even if he doesn't take that leap, he's still a very good player. But in, in Xander Bogart's mind, he has to be thinking about the fact that he has 2018 and 2019 to prove himself as an elite player and to try and join that class of Correa, Seager, Lindor, um, those types of players that we thought he was going to be in that class when, when he came up. Um, 
and I think he still could be, which is sort of the frustrating thing because, like you said, we see flashes of it. We see bits where um, he is hitting 300 with power, hitting the ball with authority, spraying yeah. the ball to all fields, where he looks like he doesn't have a lot of holes in his game at all. And we know that opposing pitchers pitch him like he's a superstar. That's one of the things we've found out from studying how people pitch him over the last couple of years is that they think of him like that. So something's going to have to happen, and he's got two years to do it so he can get one of those gigantic contracts. And the Red Sox, you better believe, are going to hold off and see what the hell happens with this guy because there's really not a lot of incentive for them to give him like a 200 and 50 million plus deal right now considering what he's done on the field so far yeah and it's just and it was always we all and like you said we always saw him coming in as being part of the next golden age of the shortstop he'd be like one of the star wars with correa with lindor uh with seager and as he could and you kind, you kind of hope that he explodes honestly as a player because you just wait you're just waiting for it and sometimes we just gotta accept that him hitting three, that 2015 season, we just kind of we might as well accept that that was just him exploding, and he might like we might compare we might compare him to that season for like the rest of his career if he doesn't like do much of anything else, but it's with I want to see if he can actually get through this next season healthy and what he can do if he like starts actually like not having his power sap from having a bum wrist. So it's it, it's it's really it's almost it's almost as much of a mystery as Jackie Bradley Jr. But at least with Bogarts, we have an idea of what to expect. Right. Yeah. I think you're right. It's going to be interesting to watch. Um, and I think, you know, this this off season, we're just going to be tuned in. We're going to be tuned in all the time because everything we've talked about this podcast has really come down to one thing which is that the Red Sox need to make a lot of moves this offseason. They've already started doing it, but they really need to do it more. Uh, I wrote about this on the site, and my argument was essentially that the window for this team is now. The window for this team is next year in 2019, and after that, we start to lose a lot of key players. After 2018, Drew Pomerantz and Craig Kimber are gone. After that, we're going to lose Sale, potentially Xander Bogarts, Rick Porcello, Thornburg, who might be an important reliever for the team next year. And then in 2020, Mookie Betts, Dustin Pedroia, Jackie Bradley Jr., all those guys are all going to be up. So um, we're getting to the point where this team needs to show something, and they need to add to the team right now when you have the best of your core. And I was thinking to myself the other day, and this is not something I put in the article, but like... We always take for granted that the Red Sox are just going to be able to sign, you know, Mookie Betts or yeah. Xander Bogarts or Jackie Bradley or, you know, any any group of these young guys that they have right now. But if the team does not make progress in the playoffs, it is not out of the realm of possibility that Betts says to himself, hey, you know what? The Dodgers just had a shitload of money come off the books. And they could use me. I'm going to go out and play for the Dodgers. Like, that's not out of the realm of possibility. There are a lot of other good baseball teams right now. And there are a lot of player, a lot of places that have a lot of money to throw around over the next few years. So I think the Red Sox need to prove over the next two years not only to themselves that they can do this, but their, 
that they're a good place to play and a good place to win and that people can win here. And I, I know that that's a really weird take to take on mm-hmm. the Red Sox, but um, I really do feel that way, that these guys could become fatigued if they don't start having some postseason success here. Yeah, a little bit. And with the whole – and I'm going back to Price on this one. With the whole uh, ravenous media and how even if the Red Sox win 93 games – uh, and put up at least something of a fight against the best offense since the 1940s. The Red Sox, this team still will get dragged across like a ground of shattered glass by some writer because they see it as a failure. And I mean, the thing is with a championship window, it's not a, there's no guarantee that you're going to win a championship. It's a window. You just gotta you at least have, you have to put. And with baseball. <clears throat> It's not like you're playing in the Premier League where you just get as many wins and runs at, toward the end of the season and try to get as many points. It's The playoffs are a crapshoot, and the division series is notoriously viable, notoriously just volatile. Mm-hmm. I mean, you only have, it's not even like the championship series where you have seven games to prove yourself. You have to like roll out at least like three, three out of your five starters, and, that, and your guys get a chance to hit. You have to start crisis managing in the second game. Right. It's it's crazy, and the Red Sox have been bounced by one the AL pennant winners, and two both got teams with ridiculously good core like teams with ridiculously good like sections like you had Cleveland with an insane pitching staff that didn't even have two of their best pitchers, and then you have the Astros who whose pitching wasn't who pitching left a little bit to be desired like Verlander and Keuchel are good sure. But their offense is insane. Like, their worst hitter was Brian McCann. He can still sock 20 homers a season. So it's it's kind of almost, I think, with players coming here, I don't know if it's as much as the winning as, the winning as it is the environment. Because you, are, you obviously have the whole underlying racism thing. Uh... With like with like that whole esca- that whole deal with um, I think it was Adam Jones and someone called him a slur from the stands or something like that. I think I felt yep. way back in like April or May. I think. Yep, I was actually at the game where the fans gave him a standing O after that it occurred. Okay, okay, and then there's like and then there's just again the ravenous media type of thing. And I mean I'm not like I'm not trying to blank the whole media. There's obviously good guys. You've got like Evan Drellich and Jim McCaffrey. They're obviously great writers. They don't they don't try to they don't try to oversell anything. They don't try to hyperbolize anything. It's they're good. It's just you have like kind of the old guard who seem to think that the only way this team is going to be good is they just turn like their thoughts into vitriol for people to read. Mm-hmm. And that and you could obviously see Price and the effect that had on him if he didn't like you know have a three point three point zero zero ERA. And his fights with the media and people. So I don't know if the winning will. I don't know if the winning will affect him as much because getting to the postseason already is kind of an exclusive club. Like you're, there's only going to be like eight teams playing in the AL in the division series. It's just kind of the pressure that comes with being in Boston because even though it's not one of those big four cities in New York, LA, Chicago, Houston, mm-hmm. the pressure kind of exceeds almost any of the any of those other cities the pressure to succeed at least so i i if they really start if they kind of start going out in the ds and the uh and the things written about them start getting a bit more harsh and unfair toward them 
I think they might start leaning to not staying here at all. It's, and I wouldn't blame them one bit for it. It's a scary thought to think that that could occur. Um, so, just strengthens that argument. You got to go out and get some guys, right? And you got to turn things around because you could easily see this thing falling apart and the Red Sox not having a whole lot to show uh, mm-hmm. in a few years, and especially with that farm system looking thin right now. I mean, you don't want to be looking up and seeing. Jason Grom is the only thing coming. Yeah, and uh, going back to your article, I, I'm i starting to lean toward your idea that the Red Sox have to go all in for the next three years because the last time the Red Sox like endeavored strongly to stay under the luxury tax threshold was 2012. And as much as Ben Charrington did with his big addition being Cody Ross, that team kind of imploded dramatically. Mm-hmm. So it's... I, I, I do kind of agree with your take on that. The team actually has to go all in because there's no improvement coming from within other than Devers, and you've already had like two months of that, so can you really call him an improvement if he's already kind of locked in as your third baseman next year? So it's – they're just going to have to – they're just going to have to shoulder that weight and start actually spending some money or just trading prospects or whatever. Like Stanton, uh, Votto – Martinez, whoever you need to get, just at least make an attempt to go get them. I'd rather I'd rather hear their names. I mean, if they don't get them, it'd be nice just to hear the Red Sox name and Dombrowski talking about getting a slugger than anything. If people are worried about Dombrowski not thinking that all-in is the strategy, let me tell you, you heard it here first. Dombrowski is going to go bananas this offseason. He's going to get everything we need. I am not worried about it. That guy is sitting right now at his desk with a shopping list of players that he wants, and he is going to get at least two bats that are going to make everybody super excited. He does not go soft on this stuff. We, we've seen it. Go home, right? Yeah, I mean, that's it. He's, he's going to go nuts, and I'm going to love it. So I, I have a feeling we're going to be on here a few more times during this offseason to uh, talk about some pretty huge moves that the team makes. and. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, it's it's kind of nice that baseball never ends for us. It's the World Series, which is an awesome World Series already, just two yeah. games in, um, and we're just constantly talking about baseball. So truly is a 365-day-year a, a sport now. So, um, yeah. Uh, by the way, Brett, you have picked the Dodgers in five. I did, yes. Uh, I think I – I was pretty damn close to that looking like a really good reality, but now they got <laughs> all three in Houston to do that. Yeah, you know, oh, I no. I was thinking about your prediction when that game looked like it was in hand, and I was like, oh man, Brett Lynn nailed this one. I said, like I said it before the uh, Clayton Kershaw started the game one. I was like, oh hell yes, I'm gonna get this. <laughs> damn it, God, like I don't hate the Astros. I like out of the playoff teams that weren't the Red Sox, I think they're the most likable, but geez, I thought the Dodgers had that in hand, and then it just all kind of went to hell. Yeah, it Ooh. was an unbelievable baseball game. Uh, they have all been really good, and it's kind of nice to see some of the pitching start actually uh, performing, too, because for a while there, it was just, uh, for the first couple rounds of the playoffs, it was like aces just getting knocked around, which was totally bizarre, but now uh, pitching has has really cemented itself, and I think we can finally lay to rest the whole Kershaw is bad in the playoffs thing. I was about to say that, yeah. Jeez, <laughs> it's, about, it's about time. Like, 
he's the best pitcher in baseball. And he's like, oh, he's bad at the playoffs. And then he just – and then after last year where he came in relief and just shut the Nationals down. And then this year, in the game won the World Series, he again shuts down the one of the best offenses in the last 60 years to one run. Like, that is incredible. And that one run was a homer. So it was just one bad pitch. It wasn't a series of mistakes. It was just one bad pitch, and that was it. Yeah, he definitely gets a bum rep, and he was used really aggressively early in his playoff career, like like he wanted to be. I mean, like he deserved to be, but, you know, it's uh, it's nice to see him get that redemption. And, I mean, if we're being honest, he could have gone that complete game, no problem. Oh, yeah, he was cruising. There was, man. Well, I, I picked the opposite of you. I have Astros in six uh, for okay. this series, so I, uh, I kind of feel like just this offense is too good to be contained by anybody. So it'll be interesting to see uh, which one of us ends up being right. Yeah, I, it should be. It's another good World Series. I mean, these are both the best teams in our respective divisions. So, well, by by like a, by like a win, the Cleveland Indians are by record better than the Astros, but they needed a 22 game win streak to get to that point. So, you know, it that one's kind of up in the air to me. So. Yeah, I think the Astros, this is about as good as a matchup as we could have possibly expected uh, yeah. with with a historic offense versus a historically good, almost historically good pitching staff. So I'm loving it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that about does it for our edition of the Red Seat Podcast. You can go on and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, any of the services where you can download podcasts. You can also rate and review us there. We always appreciate that. We like to get feedback. It helps us get new ears for people to find us. Um, you can submit questions to the show over the off season too. That's something that uh, we we haven't been checking a ton because, frankly, we don't get a lot of questions. Um, but you can do that on any of the Red Seat posts through a Google submission box. Uh, you can also follow Brett on Twitter at, at @bacowit, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at @devjake. I almost forgot my own Twitter handle there. <laughs> uh, and uh, we will be with you periodically through the off season, especially as news breaks. So thank you for joining us today and making us uh, part of your baseball podcast routine. It's time for some straight talk. It's tax refund time, hallelujah. What are you going to do with all that glorious extra cash? A new drone? No, it'll end up in the tree. Here's a better plan. Try Straight Talk Wireless and get 25 gigs of high-speed data for just 45 bucks a month. All on America's best 4G LTE networks. Plus, save up to $200 on a Samsung Galaxy S9 with in-store activation. Straight Talk Wireless, only at Walmart. See terms at straighttalk.com.